That weekend was the whole thing. Between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I did the gamut. I got stoned out of my mind, and the expression stone was strictly for alcohol before drugs became as available as they are today. And I got stoned, I had a woman, I got into a fight, and you know I couldn't wait to come next weekend again. You know, I, I thought this was living, you know. It changed my whole attitude. I see what happened with my father. I see why he liked it. I loved alcohol. I loved what it did to me. I was a kid, you know, I was a pretty much straight kid. In fact, we had rapid advance in those days where you took a year's work in six months for the seventh grade and a year's work in, year's work in six months for the eighth grade. I got past that to the ninth, and I never got past that. I stayed there till they threw me out at 16, or I quit. And this is what happened. Every week, all the week long, I'd suck up to the big guys. And come the weekend, they'd invite me in again. They'd give me somebody else's draft card. I had a lie to go with it. And it was always lying, because they had the girls there, you know. World War II was on, and they were, the men were either too young or too old. And, you know... The guys, the old guys had the money, but they didn't have Viagra, so they took the young guys. <laughs> Today, us old guys got the edge on the young ones. <laughs> and this is what happened, you know, and after a while, the big guys say, big guys say, hey, Jim, don't you take your hand out of your pocket and buy around? I worked after school for 35 cents an hour, and that's what a shot in a beer was. So I says, all right, sure. So I, I was street smart. Don't un- misunderstand me. Alcohol didn't do it all. I was a street kid. And I knew what was going on. I stole candy in the candy store when I was a kid. And they catch you and go to another candy store. But they had two cents on the stand for the news and mirror. You steal the two cents. You get a piece of candy for two cents in those days. Today, forget about it. You need two dollars for a bar of candy. But this is what you know, did. So I cut school, I'd tell the boss there's no school and I'd work all day and I had money and after a while that wasn't enough the boss said hey how much time can, I mean, how much time can you take off from school? They didn't want to get trouble with the state law so I had to do work after school only but we had Macy's and Gimbals up the street and I'd go up there and steal something and sell it and after that I was mugging somebody I'd mug the staggering drunk coming home but I realized after a while, if he was staggering, he spent all his money in the bar of it. <laughs> I was no hero. I'd pick on the offending homosexual who would come down. You could spot them, you know. And, of course, if the police caught you with something like that, you didn't have to worry because they'd kick you in the butt and do a job on him. The homosexual didn't stand a chance in New York in those days. That fact, I knew the score, you know. I knew what I was doing. Even sober, I was doing these things. Never mind only drinking. By the time I was 16, I spent seven nights a week in the bar. My family couldn't do anything with me. They said, if you're not in by 12 o'clock, they locked me out. So I'd ride the subway or go to an all-night movie, and I didn't worry about anything. I'd hustle myself, you know, like, did whatever I did I had to do to make money. All I wanted to do was drink. This was my lifestyle at 16. At 16, they told me to quit or get thrown out of school, so I quit, of course. I was in the ninth grade. 16, my father got cancer, throat cancer, and he passed away. My sister, I had a mother and sister left. My sister came into the bar to tell me Dad passed away. I said I'd be right there. 
I took me another two hours to finish drinking to get there. I was useless at that wake. I had no feelings for anyone. I had no feelings for myself at 16 years old. I did not like what I was doing. I had no way of knowing that there was a different lifestyle. So that's what I did. At 17, I got arrested for the first time. But fortunately for me, my mother and sister heard it on the radio. This is before television, not news and whatnot. And they had a priest and a lawyer at arrangements. The cop had beat me bad that night. I was bruised up. If I didn't protect my head, he would have killed me. I thought out later on he was in the blackout. That's another story. I'll go into that later. They had me at arrangement. I got away with it. And it didn't bother me. That didn't stop me from drinking a close call to going to prison. By the time I was 18, I knew I had a problem with alcohol. I never heard of AA. I never knew anyone who stopped drinking. The only guys who stopped drinking were the guys who lived in furnished rooms and passed out smoking cigarettes and burnt themselves to death. Those were the only two guys I know ever stopped smoking. But at 18, I knew I had a problem. If I was invited to a party and it was a one or two drink party, I wouldn't drink at all. I'd wait till the party was over and then I'd go out and drink like a man. Like hell it was, you know. This was the thing. At 18, I came home at Christmas and broke up the Christmas tree, and that was the end for my mother and sister. They had it with my father, and they weren't going to have it with me, and they threw me out. I got a furnished room, and the one thing I know made the point of doing in a furnished room, I didn't smoke. I drank, but I didn't smoke. You know, those two other guys scared me. And this is the way it went. I drank every day. I worked occasionally and stole occasionally. This was my lifestyle. By the time I was 21, everybody I knew had settled down, got married, did the right thing, whatever we were doing. So I thought maybe if I got married, I'd settle down and stop drinking. I got married. I wasn't going to drink on my wedding day, but halfway through the reception, I got in my head. I wanted to get my father-in-law drunk, but I got so drunk I couldn't even consummate the marriage that night. There was a speaker here last month who said every time he drank, he became a sperm bank. I don't know what he drank. 75% of the time I drank, I was a washout. You know, and, and I was a young man. You know, I was a, this is terrible, but you know, this is, this is fact. I either passed out or washed out, you know. That's what alcohol did to me, even as a young man. I realized that after a while, six weeks into marriage, I knew this wasn't going to be the story. She just told me about my drinking and whatnot. The Korean War just broke out, and I was 1A legitimately. So I went down to the draft board and told them I'm ready, and they put me in. Let me also say this. When I worked, I worked very hard in whatever job I happened to have. But the whole thing is sometimes I go out to lunch and I come back because I start drinking. I'd rather drink than work, you know. And, of course, sometimes I had money coming in. I still was so embarrassed I wouldn't go back to it. I went into the Army, and it was the same thing in the Army. I soldiered when I had a soldier. I think it was six weeks after we were in. They gave us our first weekend pass. I was up at Fort Devens, Mass., the town of Ed. He died from Massachusetts, know the place. Or one horse town or one bar town. And I woke up in jail the next morning. I had no idea what I was there for. I didn't, you know, they could have charged me with murder, rape. I had no, I was in a blackout. I found out they, they caught me stealing alcohol out of the bar. They turned me back to the army, slap on the wrist, and two-week restriction, and then that was to happen to me three more times when I was in the army, in Missouri, in California, and Alaska. I woke up in jail not knowing what I was there for. 
alcohol has really taken me way down the line. I couldn't even, you know, be a good thief. Because more times than not, I get drunk and get arrested. I was very fortunate. I always got away with it. In fact, in California, I had two rookie cops waiting for me when I was coming out of the building. I was told the next day they were shaking so much they didn't know if they were going to shoot me or themselves. I'm glad they didn't. I'm glad they didn't. I got out of the Army. I spent two years in the Army. I got an honorable release, and I went back to the same way I was before. Six months out of the Army, I got arrested again. There he goes again, you know. And this time, you know, the veteran, the whole bit, nice kid and everything like that, I beat that. The following year, I got arrested again. This time, I didn't get the breaks I got before, and they sent me up to Simpson. When I got up there, the guys I knew up there said, they just started AA up here. You put your number in on a Sunday afternoon. You listen to these guys come. You try to impress them for old people. Maybe you save yourself a year or so. And that's what I did. Every Sunday I went up there. If the speaker was funny, we laughed and listened to him. If it was a holy roller, we tuned out and we talked to ourselves. We didn't see each other all week. And that's it. That's fact. You know, this is what happened. I didn't drink in the army. I did the same thing I did when I was 18. I was invited to these parties. A one or two drink party, I wouldn't drink at all until the party was over. I said the same thing. I wasn't going to drink in jail until I got out. And then I was going to wipe New York out, you know. I was going to do the town up. As it turned out, you know, this is the way it went. I didn't drink in jail, but I don't count that. For the simple reason, I didn't live the AA way. I fought, I lied, I cheated, I stole everything. That's not the AA way. To make parole in those days, you had to have a home to go to and a job to go to. Otherwise, you had to do your whole bit. A lot of poor guys had to do their time, all of it, because they couldn't get a home to go to a job. It's a different era. And I reconciled with my mother and sister, and they said they'd take me home. I had a friend who had a trucking company. He said he'd give me a help job as a helper on a truck, and I made parole. And a month before I was released, one of the guys I had gotten to know up there came back and spoke. And he told me how he was doing. He said he's doing good. He was a wire later and construction was great those years. And he's doing good. He's working hard. He's gambling, going out with women. But he's going to AA. He's very active in the AA group. And he slipped me a meeting book. There were just thin ones. I showed Jerry. I still got it. It said February 1960 on it. And that's what I did. I kept it. I slipped it in my pocket. You weren't supposed to have anything that didn't have a stamp. In those days, everything was, you know, they checked your mail, you could only write, there was no such thing as phones, there was certainly no such thing as congenial visits. That was in that fantasy. But, you know, this is what, I got released, I had spent five and a half years in prison. The last year I was there, I worked in a bake shop, and I, could, I was in charge of the East, anyone who wanted to make up a batch had to come through me to get it. And that's what I did. I give it to them and they make up a batch, but I didn't drink. I got out. I got on the train to go home. And that was the year the miniskirt came in being. And those girls looked fantastic. Their legs, that was the closest I came to a girl in five years. And their legs went from their ankles to their shoulders. They were beautiful. <laughs> that's, that shook me up and I went home. I went home to my mother for a home-cooked meal. I didn't even go report. The next morning I went and I reported to the parole department. And as I came out, I had that meeting list that my friend gave me in jail. And I could have went back to the bars and I didn't. 
There was one afternoon meeting during the week in New York at that time at the Aronite Club on 46th Street, two on Sundays, and those were the only afternoon meetings that they had in those days. And I came out, and I went to an afternoon meeting. Guy was there. I showed him my meeting, and he marked it for my area. I lived in Yorkville at the time. He says, go there. So I went home, had a home-cooked meal. That night, I went to a meeting, not the one I... My sponsor told me about, but another one close by, and that's what I did. I went there, and I met the guy I knew upstate. And he says, hey, you're sober? I says, yeah. He says, you've had a meeting? Yeah. He says, you have a woman? I said, no. So he took me to a house that's not a home. <laughs> you know, he became my sponsor. <laughs> this, this is fact. This is, this is true. But he also said, our group meets on Friday night, and we need a little help. Why don't you come early and meet some people? In those days, they had cups and saucers. It was in the church school base and cups and saucers, and you had to wash them. You had a big pot. You made the coffee in. You swept the floors and the ashtrays. And I said, this is what you want me to do? He says, well, this is what I did. He said, this is what I did. It worked for me. I said, all right. And that's what I did. First couple of months, that's all I did was wash cups and saucers. Hey, kid, give me a cup of coffee. Hey, kid, give me a cup of coffee. I say that now, literally, but I was young then, you know. And this is what happened. And I think it was three or four weeks after that, he said, put your suit on. We're going on a 12-step call. You didn't go on 12-step calls alone. You never knew what shape the guy was going to be in. And it was the first time I seen a guy in AA with a half pint of whiskey in his pocket. He says, you don't know what shape the guy's going to be in. He might need a drink to live. And that's what he did. We went, you've seen that poster with the two guys, the young guys and the guy on the bed. That's just the way it was. The guy was in the furnished room on 94th Street. And that's what I did. We did. And he put him into Towns Hospital. And that's where he went because it was his pigeon. He took, Towns Hospital was a six-day program for $95.00. And only alcoholics, it was just for alcoholics, and only people in AA could go visit you there in those days. And that's what I did. And then he says, come on, you get active. After 90 days, that was the only 90-day thing we had. We didn't have 90 meetings in 90 days. It's just a 24-hour program. That's all we do with it. One day at a time. But after three months, you have to start speaking and sharing. And that's what I did. He had me speak in my group and all around the area. You'd hear the same guy in... Three, three times in the same week. There's also, I was very lucky. I've heard guys talk about old timers. They used to have to drive 50 miles to a meeting. I could walk to a different meeting seven nights a week in Manhattan. I was very fortunate. And we did. We only had two types of meeting. Open, speak, open speaker meeting and closed discussion meeting for the alcoholic. Those were the only two types of meetings we had. We didn't have step meetings or big book meetings or women's meetings or men. We had AA meetings. And this is the way it was. This meeting here is a lively meeting. I love this meeting because it's so lively. This is the way it used to be. We used to have 100 or 200 people at the Yorkville group, and they'd be loud. And if one of the speakers went spoke after 10 o'clock, the meetings were 8, 8.30 or 10. He yelled out, no souls saved after 10 o'clock, and he shut them up. <laughs> these, these guys, some of these speakers, they can go on for days for crying out loud. I'm not one of them, so feel safe, you know. Afterwards, he says, come on, we're going to go into the prisons and talk and the Rikers Island, the tombs and all of them. He says, you've got to share with them like I did up there. 
And that's what I did. Then he introduced me to the guy, Jack Brennan. He's dead now. I can use his last name. He started the Cops and Robbers Group in Mount Vernon. Very, very active man. He died quite a few years ago in Australia. He moved there. And that's what I did. And I went to all the prisons, and I was with my sponsor one day, and I'm coming out, and the gate slammed. I start to shake. He says, what's the matter? I says, I don't know. Every time the gate shakes, he says, forget about it. You don't do anything in that area to hurt yourself. Do something else. Be program chairman. We used to have a, a program. Every three months, we'd go and book speakers in the whole area. Uncoming and outgoing. You don't do anything in AA to hurt yourself. I'm here to help myself. And AA giving me all the help I needed. I, he said, I want you to speak at this group, the PAX group, on 16th Street. It's a cops group. And I spoke there, and I happened to mention that I got a beating from the 15th precinct. That precinct wasn't there anymore. And the guy came up to me afterwards and said, that was me. I beat you up, and I didn't know about it. They told me about it the next day. They said, you almost killed that kid. And he didn't remember. He's in fact, I said, that, I've done that myself. I've done things in blackouts that I can't remember. I can't make amends if I don't remember. The only thing I can try to do is leave a de- live a decent life for me. And you people have given me that. Three months in the program, I met a girl in the program who had six months, and of course, it was instant lust or love, whatever. But she was, she was crazy to me. Three months later, she wanted to get married. I said, no way. I'm on parole for another four years. I'm a helper on a truck. I can't do nothing. So it broke up. But I called the sponsor and I called her best friend to tell them what happened. And they took care of it. She never drank over it. And that wouldn't have been my problem. I'd done whatever I could. But a year later, I met a girl, not in AA, and I fell in love. And nine months later, we got married. And nine months after that, we had a son. We were very lucky before that. <laughs> if we had it before that, I would have been back in prison. That's a violation. <laughs> very lucky. We had a two-room apartment. I tried to ask him if I can get a driver's license. The parole department wouldn't give me anything. So I changed industries. I lied to get a job. I lied to get into the union. I had a son and wife, and I wanted to make sure they were supported. We had a two-bedroom two-room apartment, and we had a two-bedroom co-op, and we had a three-bedroom house. You know, went the whole bit, all because I was sober in AA. And I was very active in all my groups. Every group I belonged, I belonged to three different groups in New York. The Yorkville group in Manhattan, the Brewster group in uh, Pasco County, and the Riverdale group in the Bronx before I moved to Florida. I had a great life. We, had, we did everything. I was very active in my group, though. Very, very active. Four years in the program, I spoke at a meeting. Some kid come up to me afterwards and said, Will you be my sponsor? I just came out of Sing Sing. I don't want to do my life on the storming plan. So for six months, I was his sponsor. For the next 24 years, we were the best of friends till he died of cancer. This is the kind of people you meet in AA. You're going to meet friends. You're going to have friends. You're going to have for the rest of your life. There's still people up in New York I talked to who I've known for 40 odd years. People, there's only a couple people left of them, I'm ashamed to say. We lost Dave today. And I lost last September. I lost my best friend in Newport Ritchie that I've known here for 11 years. You know, Danny. And this is the thing, you know. They all died sober, of course, but the thing was, oh, you know, you're losing all the people. I know one guy, he's in Washington State, who's got 50 years. He's one of the few guys I know who's got more time than me. 
couple of girls in New York, a couple of women, still work at in, Intergroup. They got 50, 52 years. They're still active. Very active in my group. I was very active there. 1988, my friend died. 88, my wife got uh, blank. Diabetes. And it ran rapid on her. Nothing flat, she became legally blind. Her kidneys went on her. She was on dialysis machine. In 91, in 88, my friend died, I said. In 91, my wife was in the hospital for the month of February. The end of March, I went out of business. My place went out of business, so I was unemployed. And she, in June, she went back in the hospital, dialysis, puree of food. She always had a little problem with Weight Watchers and whatnot, 140, 50 pounds. She was down to 92 pounds. And, you know, but there's no coincidence. I was there every morning from 8 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock at night. I tell you, I had a son. When my son was 13, I took him aside. We were living up in Carmel, New York. I took him aside to tell him about me because he couldn't visualize me being the man I was when I was drinking. So I told him about my life, and the only thing he can say is, Mommy knew and he didn't. He couldn't visualize me being the bum I was when I was drinking. Thank you. He couldn't visualize me as being that way. Because he well, was a hard-working, loving father and husband. This is what AA did, me, did for me. AA gave me G-O-D. Good all the direction. I never had that in my drinking life. But AA gave me that. AA showed me how to be a decent human being. As I said, my wife died in 91. In uh, July, in September, I retired. I was miserable. I didn't want to stay. We were going to retire to Myrtle Beach. We had a deposit on a trailer right off the beach. I called the woman up and said, I'm not going to. She says, I'll send you a deposit. Don't worry about it. My son was in Georgia. My son graduated high school. He says, I want to go to the Citadel. I thought he wanted to be an officer and a gentleman. Two and a half years in Citadel, he says, I want to quit. I said, what? He says, I want to quit. I want to be a policeman. And I says, all right. Twenty years later, my son's still a policeman. He's a policeman, and I'm a next con. And we love each other very much. <laughs> but we love each other very, very much. I tell him, I talk to him just about every day. In fact, he was just here last week with his four-year-old daughter. And I love to see him come, but I love to see him go. <laughs> I'm too old to have a four and a half round. <laughs> but I, we had a great time. We went to the beach, we went to the pool, we went out here. They went to Disney World by themselves. That's for you young guys, you know. As I said, I was very active in my group. Let me also say this. You guys from the Tampa Young People's Group, you do some hell of a job setting up here every week. I got to give you a hand on that. And the predominantly girls, you guys ought to be ashamed of yourself. I'm serious. You know, we, the girls, there weren't that many girls in AA when I first came in, so it was always a guy. But here, thank God for you girls. Yes, 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 yes. And this is the way it went, you know. I came down here. I, my son was in Georgia. I came to visit him. I knew one guy in Florida. I hadn't been in Florida in 40 years. 
I came to visit him. He said, well, just stick around. I, you know, I was still miserable. My wife was gone. Most of the people I knew in New York were gone. So I went to the furnished apartment to see if I liked Florida. This was up in Newport, Richie. I was good. I went home, packed up, and moved down here. I got back. I got involved with the KISS group even before I moved down here permanently. And right away, they got me going. We were program chairman and everything else. We go speak as far as Naples, Hapaka, wherever anyone wants to exchange a meeting. We used to speak at Port Charlotte a lot and Sarasota with Jack. He's here tonight somewhere. There he is. You know, we would go in every couple of times a year. We exchanged meetings to Sarasota. And Eddie, see, everyone who knows who I'm talking about, he died last year or two years ago already. And this is the way it went. I got very involved. After a while, I started dating, and there was nobody that I canceled, nobody at all. You know, but also, let me say this. Five years ago, this June, a friend of mine who passed away, Danny, and another guy from New York, we were going to, we decided we'd go to Akron. Because everything in New York is Bill W. Dr. Bob was, you know, we knew about him, but not really. So we thought we'd go to Akron for Founders Day. It was my 38th anniversary, and I wanted to be there for that. And we went there, and Ray, everybody knows Ray, he had his pigeon pick us up at the airport, take us around to the house, Dr. Bob's house, the grave site, the gate house, the hospital, the whole bit. Then he drove us back to the airport after the weekend was over. When we got there, he gave us a copy, a copy of the original big yellow, yellow and red big book. I was so touched by this guy, his humility and his graciousness, that I felt obligated to read the big book cover to cover. That was the first time I read the big book cover to cover. When I came into AA, as I said, we only had open speaker meeting and closed discussion meeting. We didn't have big book meeting. And let me say this. If reading the big book and studying the big book and quoting a paper keeps you sober and happy, do it. If doing the steps and living the steps keep you sober and happy, do it. If being in service, working that intergroup or general service or anything, the group here keeps you sober and happy, do it. But please, please, don't tell me you got a year or five years or 25 years. You're sober, but life sucks. If, that, if you're sober and life sucks, you're not living the AA way. Don't misunderstand. You don't go giddy around all the time. We all go through bad times. We lose loved ones. Sickness and health, you know, we loss of a job, income and everything. But if we stay sober in AA, all these things pass and life gets good again. As I said, you know, in fact, three years ago, I lived in a co-op. Friends of, friends of mine introduced me to a woman. And there I am, you know, 70 years old, I fell in love again. She's not an alcoholic. You know, she knows all about me. I told her all about me. She was married for 30 years to a New York City detective. <laughs> I can't get away from those cops. <laughs> but this is what happened, you know, and we have a good life. We go away together. She has her place and I have my place. After almost 12 years, I like living alone. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm retired. I retired in 92, and I take retirement very, very serious. <laughs> I don't get up before 10 o'clock in the morning. 
If it's an emergency, you call me at 6. But I don't get up before 10 o'clock in the morning. I have a great life because of you people in AA who were here when I came to show me how to stay sober. Nobody told me how to get sober. They didn't tell me I had to do this. I had to, if they would have told me I had to do anything, I would have balked. For five years, I was told when to get up, when to go to bed, when to take a shower. I've had more fun sober. We've done more things sober. My wife and I, we went to Europe. We went to the island. We went all over. My wife didn't like to go on cruises, so we flew wherever we go. And we enjoyed it. I got a woman now. She likes cruises, so now we go on cruises. I have the problem with alcohol. My wife could drink. My son can drink. My lady friend can drink. I can't drink. I have the problem. I have a problem with alcohol. And if I go to means and try to stay sober to the best of my ability, and if I try to give it away, I can't keep AA. I have to give it away any way I can. As I said, for five, six years I was sober up in Newport, Beach. I moved down here. God, it's almost five years. God, I'm almost in Florida, 11 years. You think I'd lose my New York accent by now? <laughs> but, you know, this is the way. I've had a life beyond my wildest dreams. I never have a problem with it. I've got nothing but tickets. Don't misunderstand me. I've got nothing but tickets. In Florida, in Georgia, in New York, anywhere I drove, I've gotten tickets. In Canada. <laughs> but that's all right, too. You know, I pay the fine or I, you know, I pay for extra insurance. That's all. You know, I pay my way now. But I've had a life beyond my wildest dreams. My son, as I said, was here last week and we have a great time. I love my son very much. We only have one child. We only had one child. And I'm very lucky. He's 6'2", 240 pounds. He's got to pick me up to kiss me now. You know, we kiss. I got no problem saying I kiss my son. And I tell him I love him. I tell my granddaughter I love her. You know, I tell my lady friend I love her. I've been very lucky to have a relationship again at my age. You know, people think, you know, after 70, you're dying off. That's baloney. Not today. But this is the way it went. Oh, God, showtime. I'll tell you what, though. I could not have done it alone. I could not have stayed sober alone. Without you people here, without the people that were here when I came, I would be out in the street. I would have been dead 35 years ago. You people have given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I thank you all for my sobriety.